Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Late last night, I returned from the funeral of my brother-in-law, Harold, who was very important in my life, the husband of my sister who passed away 17 years ago. But he was a, like a father figure in my life. And as I prepared this sermon this week, I kept thinking about how much he embodied what I'm about to speak of, this love of God and love of neighbor. And he loved me and took care of me and exemplified and was Christ to me in my life. This morning, we have recited the first psalm, which is the prologue to the book of Psalms. Uh, understanding it correctly hinges on understanding any of the other psalms if we first do not understand it and its invocation to dwell in Torah. In its Im imagery, it ties together visually the beginning and end of our scriptures along the banks of the Edonic River. And in our gospel reading, we heard Jesus recite the greatest commandment, quoting his beloved Torah from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In quoting the Shema, Jesus is repeating the essence of Psalm 1, that the aim of life is to orient one's entire life towards God and in God towards others. I want to start with Psalm 1 and invite you to join me in examining its beautiful imagery and its instructions in the two ways of life, one that leads to unhappiness and death, and the other to a life of unwavering love and delight for God, which yields true human flourishing. The secret to this life begins with meditating upon Yahweh's law day and night. We might be tempted when we see the word law that this means only that we meditate upon God's rules. But the Torah for the Israelites had many levels of meaning. It did contain God's laws, his statutes, and his judgments. But so much more than mere rules, it, it explains and he instructs through the Torah the way of wisdom, that rich tradition which instructs humanity about God's intentions for us, his will for human life, and his creation. Torah was the Israelites' inheritance, and it is our hope. The law here is thought to pertain specifically to the first five books of Moses, and this is significant because these books contained the spoken words of the Lord directly to Moses and the descriptions of his physical appearances or theophanies to Moses, such as the burning bush, and instructions for building the tabernacle, which held the tablets of the Ten Commandments. It was the tent of meeting, meeting in which God manifested his presence with his people. In time, the Torah itself came to symbolize that very presence of God with his covenant people. The Torah contained God's covenant promises to be with them always. Therefore, a good paraphrase of verse 2 might be, blessed are those who delight in the presence of the Lord, and in his presence shall we meditate on his laws day and night. And what visual picture does a psalm give this state of blessedness? 
They are like trees planted by the river that will bring forth his fruit in due season. Eugene Peterson, who I love his paraphrases of the um, scriptures and the message, he paraphrases verse 2 and 3 of this psalm. You thrill to God, Yahweh's word. You chew on scripture day and night. And you're a tree replanted in Eden, bearing fresh fruit. So why the mention of Eden? There are so many references to waters and rivers, starting with Genesis 2.22 in the scriptures, when we first hear of the river that flowed and even watering its garden, all the way to Revelations 22, when the angel showed John the river of water that flowed from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. So take a minute and look at this beautiful imagery that we have uh, in the back of our nave. And here I want you to note that this tree of life is the cross. Like that tree, the godly are planted close to God. They receive from the Torah the sustenance they need to live justly. They drink from the water from which they will never thirst. And this image also reminds me of how tree roots grow deep into the ground to find those underground reservoirs of water beneath the soil to feed their uttermost branches as a picture for what it means for us to dwell deeply with God, that we must dig deep to find his still waters. It is from these waters we find the depth of God's love for us. It is there where we hear God speak to us through his word and where we find the true life that yields his love and life. Another translator translates, they shall bring forth fruit. They shall bring forth fruit in this way. And in all they do, they give life. Adding, God's people give life when we live from the heart of love. We give light. We give life and light when our spirit delights in God. This, the psalmist ends with this phrase, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Here the Hebrew word translating as knowing, the Lord knows the righteous, is yada, a verb that describes a relationship so intimate that in other contexts it is translated as the most intimate act between a man and a woman. The Lord intimately knows, then, the way of the righteous who seek after him with all their heart. But righteousness here is, is not describing, like it's not here like justification, the state that righteousness, but rather it's referring to when we are living our lives, meditating on the law day and night, we practice justice. Righteousness here actually means justice. We practice justice in all of our relationships with God. And that is the fruit of centering one's life on God, is that we love his people and his creation as he does. In our Old Testament reading, this just living is exemplified in those commandments to the people of Israel to treat those outside of their community as they would treat their own, to aid the widow and the fatherless, to not oppress the poor with unjust lending practices, and finally, if you borrow your neighbor's cloak, 
Make sure you return it. So who are the wicked and the scoffers? Last week in our catechesis session, Patrick Egan asked us to discuss among ourselves the Christological meaning in, the, in Psalm 1, and I want to kind of give a little uh, plug here for catechesis because that's what we're doing throughout um, the rest of this year and into January is we're really studying God's word and looking for all the different ways it can feed us. And so Patrick, um, before we broke into small groups to talk about this together, he put up a very provocative slide. And it was a painting of Jesus eating with a ragtag group of people composed of tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners, provoking the Pharisees to accuse Jesus of keeping company with the very people, the very wicked people of Psalm 1, which Psalm 1 seemingly instructs us to avoid. But what Jesus was doing with this group of people, he was hanging out with them, but he was not taking their counsel, just the opposite. He was embodying the love of the Father who beckons his lost sheep to return to his love. Jesus always first loved and drew people to himself, and then he healed them and he forgave them. And finally, and only then would he utter the words, now go and sin no more. Jesus knew the ways of his lost sheep because he knew their hearts. He knew their longings. And he did not dine with scoffers. And for me, scoffers, I immediately think of the Pharisees who scorned those lost sheep and scoffed at Jesus. He reserved his strongest words of condemnation for that group of sinners. So I also think, keeping that in mind, that this psalm might make us think twice when we are, in fact, ourselves naming people as sinners and scoffers, because it is so easy to accuse others rather than looking into our own hearts and having, therefore, compassion for them, because all of us are sinners. Psalm 1 teaches us ourselves then to immerse ourselves in God's words so that they may shape our souls into his heart of love and that which he loves and to hate that which he hates. And then the word became flesh and lived among us. The word, God's words, became enfleshed in Jesus and as I referenced earlier, this verb in the Old Testament refers to God dwelling in his tabernacle. In other words, now Christ is the locus of God's dwelling with Israel as he had dwelt with them in the tabernacle in the desert where his Torah resided. And Jesus said his purpose was not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to embody it. In fact, in the second part of the scriptures today, he identifies himself as that very Lord who we commune with when we read Torah. So now reading and dwelling also becomes watching, watching how Jesus lived and how he loved. Jesus made this statement about that he came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it very early in his Galilean ministry and he so shocked the Pharisees that from that point on, they doggedly pursued him, showing up everywhere to mock him and to question him, culminating 
in this conversation, which took place on the Monday of Easter week in the temple, where they continue their public confrontation so as to humiliate him. First, we heard last week about paying taxes and then whether he believed in the resurrection of the dead. And finally, today, the ultimate trick question. Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers them by quoting the most fundamental and widely recited passage for the Israelites and the Jews in their Torah, the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then Jesus added another scripture that is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And honestly, I always thought that that was just Jesus just came up with that golden rule. But actually, he was quoting Leviticus 19.18. So as he often did in his uh, confrontations with the Pharisees, he spoke their law back to them and in a way humiliated them because they could not, they were not fulfilling that law. So notice the second commandment is like the first. That's what Jesus says. It is like the first. So the two are not to be collapsed into each other because the beginning of learning to love others is first to love God. We love because he first loved us. Otherwise, our love for others may only be a shallow kind of love or trying to earn their friendship or earn their esteem. True, unselfish love flows out of the love relationship we have with God. And to grow in that love with God, for God, to dwell in his presence takes time and energy and focus. It takes heeding the word of the psalmist to meditate and dwell in God's word and presence day and night. And that's why we have our Anglican practices of morning and evening prayer. But Jesus added these words. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And I was thinking about, what does that mean? Um, these, this, these two commandments hang, all the other commandments hang on them. And so what the image that came to my mind is once more that beautiful tree in the garden. These two commandments are the trunk of that tree on which all the other commandments or branches hang. And Jesus here is not giving us a statement of logic such as these two statements equal the rest of the law. Rather, the love of God and the love of yourself and others is the source of one obedience to the rest of the law and the marker of whether our obedience to it is true. Amen. <laughs>